Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Welcome to Medieval Church History. I'm Teresa Holman, and with me is Father Michael Witt. Welcome, Father. Uh, thank you, Teresa. It's good to have you here and to be talking about church history, and we've been talking about the Crusades. Right. We got into that the last uh, several sessions. We were looking at the reform of the church, the way that the papacy and some really incredible reformers were able to separate the uh, the church away from feudalism um, and how feudalism had held the church down. Uh, no sooner had they succeeded in doing that, and um, they got a call from the east, uh, the Emperor Alexius, saying, I'm in trouble, uh, send me help. And uh, then, of course, um, you have the Council of Clermont in, in southern France when Urban II goes back home, basically, he was a Frenchman, uh, goes back home, calls upon the, the nobles of Europe to come to the aid of Alexis, but more than that, to, to free the Holy Land so that pilgrimages could take place again. I remember that the Turks had been quite aggressive. They had, were recent converts to Islam, and they were quite aggressive at not allowing Christians to take those uh, pilgrimages, which had been something that even, for the most part, the Fatimids, when they were in control of the Holy Land, had allowed a mm-hmm. um, much greater sense of tolerance of other peoples of the book. Um, and, and so there you have then the call. And as we talked about last time around, uh, the word got out. Itinerant preachers began preaching this crusade. It turned into a big Paul Mall of, of thousands of peasants uh, heading under the uh, rather strange leadership of um, Peter the Hermit and Walter the Penniless, or Walter the Saint-Savant. <laughs> guy who doesn't know nothing. <laughs> nothing and uh and then of course the terrible disaster after they reach constantinople they're sent across the bosporus straits into um certain death uh, at the hands of the turks right. uh, their intention was to take nicaea and of course that did not happen um then what happens is that little by little alexis begins receiving the professionals uh, little by little, small troops of, um, of professional soldiers of knights are arriving from uh, from Europe, and they're coming basically in, in three waves. Although they'll trickle in in these waves, but the first one to um, we might want to take a look at is Godfrey de Bouillon. Okay. And he gathers together. Remember that, that rather than immediately beginning this crusade, these guys gathered back in their castles and they planned out the logistics. Logistics are going to be so important to this uh, this crusade, which we'll talk a little bit about later on. But um, they had to pull together all the horses, all of the uh, supplies, um, uh, the extra whatever else they're going to need, the armor, the knights, the uh, um, the assistants, everybody. And then once they had themselves ready, then they began the move. And um, Godfrey de Bouillon marches across eastern France into Germany to the Rhine River and then begins traveling up the Rhine River, which is going south, of course, okay. uh, into uh, what is today the, the state of Baden-Württemberg, and then crossing over a, a small land portion to the Danube River, and then beginning that, that descent of the Danube all the way through 
what is today Germany and uh, Austria, uh, Hungary, Bulgaria, and then down to um, Constantinople itself. Uh, Gottfried de Bouillon is is the, uh, in my mind, the ultimate knight. And this guy, in order to do this crusade, actually sold an entire city. Uh, the city of Verdun was was his, and he sold it in order to pay for his trip and the trip of the uh, of, of his soldiers to be able to do this. Now that that is an exceptional gift of himself to to offer that for the crusades. Yeah. Yeah, and and understanding that that he and others clearly understood that they might very well never see their homeland again. Right. You know, not oh, only that they might die, but this is not a trip that you're going to just turn around and, you know, take Air France. Well, yeah, back, exactly. Back you're not home, just going to fly down there and conquer and. Yeah, turn around. Yeah. So, yeah, this was uh, this was a trip of a lifetime, quite literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's that's his um, his people. Um, and then along with that, uh, in the south, there's a, another nobleman who rallies troops around him. He begins moving uh, to the east also, and this is uh, Raymond of Toulouse. So this is the southern city of, in, in France, uh, Toulouse. And instead of going up over the Alps in order to follow the same route that uh, Godfrey de Bouillon took, uh, instead what he does is Raymond marches uh, along the Mediterranean into into the Po River Valley. This is a beautiful, wonderful uh, river valley in northern I- uh, Italy. And he marches across the Po, and then around Venice will make that turn upward, up around the top of the Adriatic Sea, and then around where Trieste is, and then begin heading down um, through the uh, the Balkans. Okay, mm-hmm. this is rough terrain. Um, this is uh, Albania, Montenegro. Uh, you remember uh, not too many years ago, words like Kosovo and mm-hmm. Bosnia Herzegovina mm-hmm. and Bosnia and all the Serbs and all that. That's uh, that's that territory. That's that area. And the terrain is rough, and the people are rough, and they don't. They're not real happy about having these uh, uh, these uh, foreign soldiers come marching through. And so there were pitched battles even as they tried to make their way through this mountainous terrain. And um, anyway, there were a lot of deaths. Uh, Raymond did not make it to, um, uh, to Constantinople unscathed. You know, and part of the problem he had to deal with, and everyone's going to have to deal with later on, is just the amount, the huge amount of food and fodder that had to be brought with them, because you couldn't expect uh, to to buy it along the way. And keeping in mind that the average horse in the Middle Ages—I don't know what they eat now—but the average horse ate 24 pounds of grain a day, of, of fodder a day. A man, typically in the Middle Ages, uh, a soldier, uh, would eat about uh, two pounds of bread a day. And then whatever vegetables, whatever herbs, whatever rabbits, or whatever he could catch on the side, that would supplement. But he could he could depend upon two pounds of bread a day. That That's uh, supplied him. And uh, I didn't say anything about wine or beer. No. Uh, you know. <laughs> It's true. Good luck if you could get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and then keep in mind that the average pack horse would be able to carry enough uh, bread to feed 150 men for one day. 
So about 300 pounds of bread could be put onto the back of a pack horse, oh. who, of course, is in itself eating 24 pounds mm -hmm. of, uh, of food a day. And you get some idea of the logistical problem of just feeding this moving army. Mm -hmm. you know? So that's two of the groups, one coming down the Rhine and Danube, another one going across the Po, and then fighting its way all the way down through the Balkans, down into... Um, uh, Constantinople. Uh, most of the others then uh, went the, the genteel way. Uh, these were the Normans and uh, the northern French and the knights from Flanders. And they made their way down, uh, basically down the rivers of France. Many of the uh, important rivers of France run north and south. Um, God, I guess, designed it that way. Uh, the Rhone River is a really good one, and so they made their way down. When they got there, then they could take ships down to Italy, and then at the port of Apulia, they hired uh, ships to take them to Constantinople. So um, they're so they're flying first. It. Yeah, they, they had a cruise. <laughs> That's right, a Mediterranean cruise. Those garments preferred the water. <laughs> yeah, really, it could be worse. Um, yeah. All, all of this played into uh, the hands of the Emperor Alexis, Alexius, <laughs> because as they arrived, he ex extorted from each one of these little groups an oath of loyalty to himself, uh -huh. a personal oath of loyalty. So the end result is that even before the crusade, the professional crusaders get underway, there's a conflict of interest at the very top. Mm -hmm. You know, on the one hand, you've got the, the nobles who have traveled all this way already, and some of them have taken casualties just to get to the jumping off point, and they're they thought that they were going to liberate Jerusalem, right. the Holy Land, you know, that, that it was Nuts. at least make it safe for pilgrims from Western Europe to, to travel there. Remember that there are three great pilgrimage sites in the Middle Ages that everyone would love to visit, at least one of them, sometime during their life. One was uh, Compostello, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and that's over in Spain. The other was Rome itself, and then the third was Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they thought. On the other hand, Alexis had the notion that, that they were going to be his private army, and they were going to liberate what is now present-day Turkey, Anatolia, to him and just hand it to him on a platter. So there's a little... There's a lot of negotiation that goes back and forth, and uh, Alexis has uh, time on his side. He thought. Okay. Well, some of the nobles decided that they des they decided to take away some of the time on his side, oh. and uh, what they did was they they torched one of the neighborhoods outside of Constantinople. Oh, I got probably got his attention there. Uh, that was their intention, and they succeeded. They did. <laughs> yeah, he very quickly said, "Well, I'll tell you what, boys. Let me give you everything you need to keep underway, and would you mind Fun going moving? <laughs> moving yeah, and uh, and they did, and they moved in the direction that he had hoped they would. They went to Nicaea. And uh, it's about 60-mile march. It was the object of the uh, uh, peasants' uh, crusade. Obviously, they didn't make it. These nobles do. They make it. Um, they laid siege to the city. And uh, within a month, um, uh, Nicaea capitulated and, and gave up. And so now they, they had uh, uh, Nicaea. Um, 
this was a shock to the Turks. It's just a shock. You know, they were very arrogant about this whole thing. They thought they were unbeatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had come in, they'd beaten up on all of the, um, uh, all of their fellow Muslims and, and basically took over just about everything in, in what has becomes Turkey itself, their own country and, uh, parts of present day Iraq and Syria. And they thought they were unbeatable. They were uh, very arrogant about this whole thing. The sultan of this region even referred to himself as the sultan of rum. And I'm not talking about a Caribbean uh, <laughs> liquor here. Uh, he, it, it's, a, it's a corruption of the word Rome. So he's calling himself the sultan of Rome. Uh, of course, uh, he's not. Okay. Uh, but yeah, right. Nonetheless, uh, and, and now he's just lost his capital city. <laughs> and so he then, um, then flees down to the south. Um, Alexis is absolutely uh, elated because the the uh, the knights do exactly as they had promised they would do for him. They turned over the city of Nicaea to him. He then came in with his troops and cleaned out the Turks uh, from that area, moving them out of uh, out of that region. And of course, that helps that helps the. Uh, the knights also because then they don't have to worry about somebody attacking them from the rear. Right. You know. Well, with the success of the siege of Nicaea, um, the uh, the Turks now formed together uh, something of a of a uh, a new alliance coming back together. You've got the Sultan of Rum joining in with the Prince of Aleppo, the Prince of Antioch, the Prince of Damascus. And they pull their forces together in order to attack the uh, the Christian um, knights and hopefully drive them out of present-day Turkey again. That was their intention. Now, the knights themselves did something that it would seem to be very um, questionable, uh, just tactically. And that was that they split their forces in two. Um, Right in the face of, of, their, of their enemy, you know, they knew that, that the Turks were going to come back, and yet they split their forces, and which would seem to be a very stupid thing to do. That, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, however, I think you have to go back to the logistics again and look at uh, the amount of food that they needed, and the fact that the region itself is is a pretty rugged area to begin with. It's, uh, it doesn't have a lot of food. It's gone through a whole generation of civil wars already, uh, so the whole production of food is, is disrupted. And added to that, the Turks have, have, whenever they could get their hands on anything that's edible, they destroyed it. It's a scorched earth policy, everything with them. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, just went back and started doing some calculating on that. The army itself, the Christian army, was made up of somewhere between two and 3,000 knights. And every knight would have at least one horse. Many of them would have two. But let's just say every knight had one horse. And then added to that was somewhere between eight and 12,000 uh, infantrymen. Okay. okay. So we're looking at a minimum of 10,000 men mm-hmm. uh, and at least... 2,000 horses, add to that the pack horses that had to carry uh, enough food, that's two pounds of, um, of uh, bread a day per man, right? And a pack horse can carry 300 uh, pounds. 
and then add to that also the non-combatants that had to come along. Uh, some of those would be the servants, the squires, some of the knights. Um, you'd have others would be, you'd have to have armorers because armor breaks. You've got to have somebody right. repair the armor. Um, uh, the uh, blacksmiths you yeah, had to have blacksmiths mm -hmm. so all kinds of you know and groomers for the horses and so you had a lot of and then some of them actually actually brought their wives with them uh, which was you know oh not God. a very smart thing to do but <laughs> no thank you yeah really yeah I'll stay at home and yeah you know. but um, and so I, I did some calculating figuring all of this out and I came to the conclusion, I'll just cut right to the, uh, the quick on this, that, um, you needed just pack horses just in order to carry the, just in order to carry the, the food for, for the humans. Just the food. Just the food. Minimum 462 pack horses. Wow. And they are alone in one week are going to consume over 11,000 pounds of food. Pack horses are going to. In order to carry the the, oh the bread that's needed, and so what I did was I added up all over a one week period. If you were going to go on a um, an expedition for one week with this army, you would need at least three hundred and fifty thousand pounds of feed for the horses. That's not even saying you know all the food that you're going to have to get for the humans. So it's it's a huge project just to move this army, you know. Oh, it has to be tremendous, and then over the t the terrain that they travel. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And it would only make sense then that they would break into two columns and then try to scavenge as much they could from the land as they could so get the, from the land. Well, it makes sense then why they had to. Yeah. If the land isn't producing that much and they've got a scorched earth policy, yeah. Then, yeah. To try to <laughs> even feed half of that. 10,000 minimum would have been difficult. Yeah. They, they broke up into two columns, and uh, the one column was under the dual command of Robert of Normandy and Beaumont. Mm -hmm. um, Beaumont is, is uh, one of those uh, that had come by way of ship. Uh, he himself is the son of the conqueror of Sicily in southern Italy. So he's a Norman. Oh, okay. And his his intention, unlike Godfrey de Bouillon, whose intentions were, I, I can't say anything bad about him. He was just the greatest, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, Bamman's intention was to do what Dad had done: go to a foreign land, conquer it, and then settle in. Set up residence. Set up residence, yeah. <laughs> and and so that was his intention. Okay. And so he's one of the two commanders that uh, in this group. Okay. okay. And mm -hmm. then in the south, uh, the other column is led by Godfrey de Bouillon and Raymond of Toulouse. Oh, okay. okay. Well, anyway, as the two columns are moving south, on July 1st of um, 1096, they um, discovered, I'm sorry, 1097, um, they discovered a, uh, a Turkish army in their way. Ah, uh, okay. And Bayamon sees this, and he does two things very quickly. The first thing is he takes uh, some riders, and he sends the riders out to try to find the other column. Oh, sure. Uh, the other thing <laughs> help. he... Yeah, help. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing he did was he took all of the impedimenta. That's uh, the the Latin term for baggage train. That's oh, nicely, <laughs> it's a good term. It's impediment, and so he took okay. all the impedimenta, the uh, 
the pack horses and the equipment and the food and the camp followers, all the non-combatants, and he pulled them all over to one place, which was guarded on one side by a swamp. Okay. So he figured then that the, uh, the Turks would not be able to attack them, at least from one side. And then he took all of his infantrymen, and uh, this would have been around 4,000 uh, men, because he had about half, and four to 5,000 men, and he put them on the other side of the impedimenta mm -hmm. in order to defend them in case the Turks attacked. Then he drew up his lines with about 1,000 knights. That's all he had. And then he did what any good medieval warrior would do. He attacked. <laughs> and so yeah, down he comes, uh, the Turks attack in the other direction, and uh, it was a very interesting contest because um, the Turks were lightly armored and they were very fast. They, they rode very quickly on their horses, and their main weapon was um, archery. So bow and arrow, and they would shoot at the uh, at 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 the uh, Christian uh, knights. The knights, on the other hand, were heavily armored and moved very slowly. Uh, top speed on a uh, a medieval cavalry charge was between six and eight miles an hour. Okay. And you put your heads on, you can run faster than okay. that. And um, and and so there's this interesting battle that takes place. It's a running <laughs> battle where the knights will attack and the Turks will run away. Uh -huh. And then when the knights stop, the Turks then attack, start but don't shooting. get close enough uh -huh. and then start shooting. And, of course, the armor protected the knights, so they're, you know, the, the uh, arrows are popping off of the armor. Unless somebody gets a really, really lucky shot, or let's put this another way, the knight is incredibly unlucky, you know, and, and he gets hit. spot where the... Even the horses were armored, but not as well. And so uh, horses were taking casualties uh, faster than the knights were. But it looked as though it was just going to be a, uh, a draw. Neither side had any advantage over the other. Finally, the Turks decided that they were going to finish this off uh, the old-fashioned way, and they forgot the, the, the knights, and they just charged at the uh, baggage train instead. Oh, okay. And, of course, the, uh, the infantry are, are trying to defend the baggage train. Um, they're not very good at that, so it, it, it looked uh, pretty bad for the Christian side at that time. You can imagine also, I mean, this is a very smart move on the part of the Turks. If they had been able to... Not capture those supplies, but destroy them. Mm -hmm. Who cares about capture? They could destroy those supplies. There's an entire the army. They would starve to death in a couple of days. So uh, you can see you know, that was a pretty uh, wise move. But it just so happened that as they were in the process of doing that, and Bayman was in the process of trying to turn his army around to come to the aid of the infantry, his, his cavalry there, uh, arriving on the... Uh, uh, over the horizon is none other than Bayamon and his oh. knights. <laughs> what a sight that must have been. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I said Bayamon. Oh, um, is the uh, other column. Uh, yes, right. Oh, okay. Yeah, the other okay. uh, column with um, Godfrey. Godfrey de Bouillon. Yeah. Okay. Well, Godfrey comes charging down, and when he does, he catches the uh, the Turks in a pincer, uh -huh. where you have uh, heavy armored knights by Bayamon on the one side, heavy armored knights by Godfrey on the other, and they're crushed in between lots of casualties, Turkish casualties. And the end result is a, uh, um, a great victory 
for the um, uh, for the Christians. <laughs> this is known as the Battle of Dorylaeum, okay. and uh, it is a shocker to the uh, to the Turks. Right. Um, you know they're not used to losing to begin with, and they're certainly not used to losing to a bunch of Christians, <laughs> and uh, so they found themselves uh, fleeing back. It's absolutely incredible that uh, that that uh, Godfrey had actually come. Um, it took it took those riders five hours to find him, and he was only six miles away. Oh my God! <laughs> so, <laughs> says something about the terrain again, I, too. Right. As they marched south, the Christian armies, uh, as they continued their their march south, now they came in contact with more and more uh, towns that welcomed them. Oh, that provisioned okay. them, and mm-hmm. basically these are Armenians. These are Christians who themselves had been conquered by the Turks just a generation earlier, mm-hmm. and now um, they see the Christians coming as as liberators, and so they're uh, they, they welcome them in. By October of 1097, the Crusaders have arrived at the city of Antioch. Um, this is uh, on the sea, on the Mediterranean Sea. And they begin to lay siege to this now uh, second important uh, Turkish outpost. Mm-hmm. And um, as they begin doing that, interestingly enough, Godfrey de Bouillon's brother decides that he's going to leave the, um, the crusading army. And he takes his men with him, and they go off to a smaller city to the east, the city of Edessa. And he conquers Edessa. Okay. Okay. Oh, he's. I. He, I thought you were. In, he was leaving to go back home. He's just splitting no. off again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's. He turns out leaving in order to get his own home. Oh. Yeah. And so he's. <laughs> you not think Bayman's got a good idea there? Yeah. And this is not Bayman. <laughs> no, I, he thought Bayman's idea was right, good. Yes. Yes. You're right. Yeah. And and so and this is Godfrey's brother for goodness sakes. Oh my gosh. You know, his name is Baldwin. We'll see Baldwin again later on. Anyway, he gets to Edessa. Edessa surrenders to him. Uh, he then forms a little kingdom of Edessa. And uh, everyone, of course, looks around and goes, Why is What about better? your oath to Alexis? Uh-huh. You know, didn't you say we were. And he says, Ah, we'll, we'll deal with that later. <laughs> okay. And it, it is dealt with uh, a little bit later. Um, an English fleet happens to arrive around the same time. They succeed in conquering the port of Edessa, uh, of, um, of Antioch, but the city itself hangs out. It, it still holds on behind its walls. Okay. And uh, all throughout the winter, there is a siege that uh, takes place. The Christians are sieging the Turks in Antioch. The Turks then siege the siegers on the outside and um, ultimately um, they receive the, 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 the crusaders receive a very strange invitation from the um, from the, the Muslims in Egypt and these are Fatimids okay. Okay? they're Shias and they basically said you know we really don't like these Turks any more than you do. Would you be interested in being allies? 
And there is this alliance that's built between Muslim Egyptians on the one hand and Western European crusaders on the other in order to take and conquer the city of Antioch. Well, interesting thing happens. Well, and you know, this shows us a little bit of the um, uh, the shifting sands mm-hmm. of this whole thing. We we have this constant concept of um, of this being some kind of a black and white war right. between Christians and and Muslims, you know, or Western Europeans and Middle Easterners or Arabs or you know Franks and Arabs and all that. It, this is not cowboys and Indians. This is um, this is much more complicated than that, and we'll find shifting alliances that take place. And there's one example of it. Yeah. Right at the moment of victory, you know, at, at, at the moment in which it looks like Antioch is going to fall, one of the Christian knights panics and fled with his men um, toward the coast, going south and toward the coast. His name is Stephen of Blois, and he reaches the coast at a little uh, village there called um, Philomelium. And at Philomelium, he comes, he, he he runs into none other than the Emperor Alexius, who has just brought a navy and an army. And, um, and Alexius is, is, the reason he's done that is that he's decided he's going to throw some of his military weight in to help the Crusaders too. Well, Stephen of Blois arrives, and Alexius goes, what's the news from the front? And he goes, terrible, we're losing. We're, we're all going to be slaughtered. And Alexius goes, oh my goodness, I better get out of here. So he takes his army and his navy and Stephen and his men all the way back to Constantinople. Oh, no. So instead of helping the crusaders... He turns around and runs away. Yeah. It's called the desertion of Philomelium. And when the crusaders found out about this, they turned around to Baldwin and said... Hey, buddy, you're right. You keep Odessa, and from now on, we're keeping whatever we get to. You know, we're not trusting this guy anymore. And so Alexius is safe back up in uh, back up in uh, Constantinople. And one after another, the Crusaders then say, "The heck with this oath. You know, you deserted us at Philomanium, and that's it." The first one to do that, besides Baldwin, who had done it before. The event actually happened. First one after the event was Bayamon. He had been looking for any opportunity, and this was it. Well, um, sure enough, the uh, the siege is successful. Antioch falls. Uh, Raymond of Toulouse then takes his men and begins to move south, heading toward Jerusalem. That's his goal. That's mm-hmm. what he wants to do. And a little garrison is left behind in Antioch. Um, the Christians have disagreements amongst themselves. Bayamon eventually turns around and takes the men that Raymond had left behind as a garrison and kicked them out. He says, you know, you go join your, your duke. You know, I'm working. And, and so he stayed then in Antioch. So now, in a sense, you've got two kingdoms, little kingdoms. One, one is in Edessa with Baldwin. The other one with Bayamon in, uh, in Antioch. And so um, the Crusaders continue moving south. They're a little demoralized at this point. I would think so. They keep seeing people stopping and 
Yeah. And Alexius yeah. just laughed with an army. And yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. It, it's like, uh, wait a minute, this isn't going this right. Isn't what we were came for. The one good thing that happened in, in all of this was in Antioch itself, after Antioch had, had been taken, they went into what had been Christian churches and, and Christian, you know, it, this is an ancient Christian site, of course, and they found something that had been hidden there for centuries. And what it was was the tip of a lance, the tip of a Roman lance. And for centuries, Christians from the from at least the third century or earlier had identified this particular weapon as being the weapon that pierced the side of Christ. It was considered to be the holy lance. And they then took that and Raymond uh, brought that as a... Um, as a relic uh, with him down to um, down toward Jerusalem, and and that rallied the um, all of the the troops mm-hmm. to, to have that. Uh, the other thing I think that it's a, just a little aside is that 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 lance is still with us today. Oh, wonderful! It's uh, it's in the uh, the Hofburg uh, Museum in Austria, wow. and uh, you can see it. It's it's on display. Um, most of the crusaders then began moving south. And as they did, uh, the Fatimids down in Egypt said, um, uh, excuse me, but where are you going? And they said, to Jerusalem. And they said, well, wait a minute, that wasn't part of our understanding. <laughs> we were just going to, you know, Got you yeah. guys and us guys, we were going to take care of the Turks, remember that? And the Crusaders said, hey, wait a minute, our object is to go to Jerusalem. We're... And so there was a falling out between the two former allies, and as the Crusaders moved on, they went city by city, um, causing the surrender of each of these Fatimid cities, Beirut in present-day Lebanon, Acre, which becomes one of the great um, uh, Christian sites in, this Latin, in the Latin kingdoms, Caesarea uh, on the sea, and then on the 7th of June, 1099, they arrive at the walls of Jerusalem. They had lost 80% of their men. That's another thing that people don't realize, is that only, only 20%, 20% of those who had started out actually made it. We were talking about a trip of a lifetime. There it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just incredible. The other thing people don't realize is that there they were standing looking at these huge, huge walls and they looked at each other and go, but, how do we get in? Uh-huh. They had forgotten to bring any siege material. Oh, no. All they had was one ladder. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I, as we were talking about what the horses were carrying, I'm thinking, well, what about all they had to carry all the the weapons and everything? <laughs> They didn't. Oops. <laughs> they forgot them. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> what can you say? <laughs> um, this is not going to be an easy nut to crack. I mean, uh, they no, had not you, the walls of Jerusalem. No, no, that's for sure. I mean, even after the Romans had destroyed it in 70 A.D. and then a, a half century later, they eventually did build it back up into right. a, a great city, and so um, there was no way to get in. And not only this, the the Fatimids were not stupid. First thing <laughs> they did was when they knew the, the the Christians were coming, they took all the Christians that were living in Jerusalem and they kicked them out. 
So there was no possibility of a fifth column. You know, somebody I mean, actually they didn't kick them all out. There was a few men who were allowed to stay there because they were doing good deeds. Mm -hmm. These are Christians, and we'll talk about them in another program because they are the kernel. They're the seed that forms together the hospitalers. And they are actually in the city of Jerusalem during the siege itself. Okay. Yeah. Really fascinating story about those guys. But anyway, everyone else is kicked out. Uh, Not only this, but when uh, they started scouring around the lands, they thought, well, we'll just put up a siege. Well, that's not going to be possible because their army is so tiny, they couldn't even surround the city with an army. And... To make matters worse, they discovered that all of the wells within miles of Jerusalem had all been poisoned. Mm -hmm. So the Fatimans knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. You know, they they had it all taken care of. And there were also rumors that an army was being marched, farmed and marched up from Egypt. And another rumor, it's not true, but the rumor that Alexius had turned against the Crusaders and had allied with the Fatimids, and he was sending a Byzantine army against them. That's not true. But, you know, those are the rumors that were going through everybody's mind Mm -hmm. as they're thinking, what on earth are we going to do? And so day after day they sat there until somebody said, hey, look at all these ships. And down in the port of Joppa, all of a sudden a bunch of Italian ships show up. They're from the city of Genoa. And I don't know how they came up with the idea, but somebody way back over in Italy said, you know, if those Frenchmen ever get to Jerusalem, they won't be able to get in without siege material. Mm. And these ships were packed full of catapults and police day and everything that they needed And, 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 and towers. And so they load these things up, they brought them across, and um, they were getting all ready to, uh, to attack when all of a sudden, on the night of July 6th, one of the knights had a dream. And in this dream, the spirit of Bishop Adamar, this was the spiritual director of the Crusades who never went, as far as I know. Anyway, he appeared to this crusader in a dream. And in the dream it said that victory would be theirs if they fasted for a novena. Well, that's that was not going to be that hard because they were running out of food anyway. <laughs> so that's what they did. They fasted, and then they, uh, for, for eight days, every day, they marched their little army all the way around the city of Jerusalem. It was sort of like a, a Jericho type of thing. Thinking. Yeah. And on the uh, on the 14th of July, then uh, Raymond of Toulouse sent a tower, one of the towers, up against the southern uh, um, gates of of the city of Jerusalem, and it was met with arrows and stones and Greek fire, and he couldn't get in. Mm-hmm. And the next day, uh, another tower had been erected, and on the north side. It was uh, it was brought up against the north walls. This was with uh, Godfrey de Bouillon in his tower, and um, that tower was successful. They were able to get over. Some of the knights were able to get over the walls into Jerusalem itself. Within 24 hours, the city had fallen to them. Wow. Now, there's a great controversy over what happens afterwards. Some of the medieval chroniclers talk about 
the crusaders going through the streets of Jerusalem uh, in their horses up to their ankles or up to their shins in blood. That so many people had been slaughtered. That, that the population of the city was was clearly decimated. I mean, when you take the population before the siege and the population after the siege, and you subtract the two, there's a huge population loss as a result. And we have always concluded, and based on a lot of these medieval documents, always concluded that there was a horrible slaughter that took place. It was Christians killing Muslims and Jews in the city, and it's one of the blackest moments in Christian history. We've always assumed that, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, in comes uh, Dr. Thomas Madden from St. Louis University, mm -hmm. and he points out something that I don't think anybody thought about prior to that, or I, and, and, and that is that the Christian army was so small it could not surround the city of Jerusalem. Right. So if they could only come in, if they were sieging on the south side, and they only came in on the north side, What's keeping everybody from just going out, going out the, the east side? Uh -huh. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a huge decline in, in the population. Maybe they all left. Uh-huh. You know, I don't know. It's an interesting question. It is. And uh, so I'll just leave it for that. But uh, data that really could document. Yeah, there's no... It is a thought to consider. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that's right. Because there's, there's no... Um, there, there are no cemeteries. There's no mass graves. We don't find uh, around 1099 a mass grave with tens of thousands of bodies in it. Uh, that's never been excavated. So, um, you know, we can take that for, for what it is and, and just leave it there. But I would, I would place that as, as one of the, uh, uh, the black legends that's been uh, uh, touted about the Crusades that I think we really... Um, might want to we might rethink, yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. Anyway, the Crusaders themselves, rather than running through the streets killing everybody, uh, what they did do was they all went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Ah, okay. And there they prayed um, and probably sang a te deum, mm -hmm. uh, thanking God for uh, this, this great opportunity that they had had. And as I say later on, we'll talk a little bit more about... Um, um, about the, the hospitalers and what, what they were doing and all of this, too. Okay. And um, anyway, after, after this all takes place, in the day or two after, the noblemen get together and they said, Look, um, Godfrey de Bouillon, you are just the greatest thing. You know, just, and uh, you, we elect you as king of Jerusalem. Mm. And, and now here's this guy again, okay? He turns sold his, his city. Yes, this is the man who sold his city, who said goodbye to France, probably never to see it again. In fact, he was right, never see it again. And, uh, and here, now, he's just been elected the king of Jerusalem. And you know what he did? He turns around and goes over to the archbishop, uh, Debert. Uh, he's the patriarch of Jerusalem. And he, Godfrey de Bouillon, does homage to Archbishop Debert instead and says I cannot be king of Jerusalem there's only one king and that's Jesus Christ and I, I I'll be his regent but I am a vassal to the church 
What a guy. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah I wish more of them were like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, one of the rumors turned out to be true. There was there was a Fatimid army on its way. Oh. And uh, Godfrey very quickly turned around, gathered together the Christian forces, marched them south. And then at, um, uh, at the Battle of Ascalon, uh, defeated the Fatimids and sent them back into Egypt. With this, the Crusaders settled into uh, p- peace, uh, occupation. Basically, they divided the uh, the Holy Lands into f- their conquests into four kingdoms. Okay. And that's going to be uh, Jerusalem. And as I say, Godfrey accepted the title as regent, but not as, as king. One year later, he'll be dead. And his brother will be elected, Baldwin, remember, from Odessa. Oh, uh-huh. He looks at Odessa, he looks at Jerusalem, he likes Jerusalem better, and he comes down. And uh, he did not pay homage to the archbishop there. <laughs> he, he becomes king of Jerusalem. Uh, uh, that's one kingdom. Another one is Tripoli. Another one is Antioch. And then the other is Odessa itself. This is a Latin kingdom that runs in the Middle East 600 miles long but in some spots is no more than 10 miles wide. No more than 10 miles wide. Wow. You know? And the only thing that keeps it alive is a constant supply coming in from uh, Italian city-states. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness those ships were there. Yes. Yeah. Huh. Well, in the meantime, um, I should say something about Bayamon. <laughs> And he's in Antioch, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, you'd think he'd be happy, you know? mm-hmm. but he's not. He is so upset. This is a guy who is obsessed. He is so upset with the very thought of Alexius that he's decided he's going to punish him. Okay. And what he does is he returns to Italy. Bayman leaves uh, his 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 conquered. You know, he, he that was his objective. Mm-hmm. But instead, he goes back to Italy, to Sicily, to southern Italy, raises an army. And then invades the um, the Byzantine Empire. Oh no! Yeah. Oh no no. He's going to punish Alexius for the uh, desertion at uh, Philomelium. They met in Albania, the two armies, in the Battle of Durazzo, and the, his army is defeated. Bayman's army is defeated. He's captured. He is humiliated by um, by Alexius, and uh, he's made to uh, take certain oaths, and then he's freed. And when he goes back to Italy, he dies, a broken man, in 1111 A.D. One of the oaths that he had made was concerning the city of Antioch. He had promised to turn Antioch over to to Alexius. Now. Uh, he, there was no way he could deliver on that anyway. He had already given Antioch to uh, his nephew, Tancred, and Tancred was not going to honor a uh, an oath that was taken under duress, certainly not by a dead uncle. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, there, there'll be a showdown, uh, and Tancred himself is going to die relatively um, young anyway, but the the bottom line on all of this is that um that these when you look at these kingdoms um 
it's very tenuous mm-hmm. at, at best. Never do you have more than 2,000 armed knights in the entire Holy Land. Never more than 2,000. At the best, there were 140,000 Christian settlers. And, and most of them are non-combatants. They're no good in a fight. And as we go throughout the remainder of the gen- this generation, as, as the generation of the conquerors, the 1099ers, huh, as, as they live and grow old and marry or have their, their wives brought in, their families brought in, and their children are brought up, as you go into that next generation, the first generation of the Latin Middle Easterners, you have a very interesting meshing that takes place. And Tancred is one of the first that does this. For instance, uh, rather than wearing typical European garb, which is really, really hot you know, <laughs> from the Middle East, he, he immediately turns over and begins wearing turbans, uh, the, uh, the long white robes of the, uh, of the Arabs, the Jalabiyah. Um, they discover that, uh, that the Arabs had something that they didn't have, perfume. Oh. To make them smell a little better, and uh, in the Middle East, that was not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got to eating olives and liking it, uh, except in the southern European areas, uh, you didn't have much by way of. I mean, you know, you had uh, Italy, southern France, and, and Spain, but outside of that, northern Europeans did not have olives, and they really kind of liked it. They also began eating white bread. <laughs> Uh, rather than uh, the European brown, the heavy brown breads that uh, that nowadays we consider to be artisan breads, right. back then they were oh no, give me that, give me that squishy stuff there, you know, <laughs> that's you know, pre-cut and all that. Um, what what happens is in the next generation there is a whole group of Europeans who are more comfortable living in the Middle East than in Europe itself. And they act like it, they dress like it, but they're Christians. Mm-hmm. And uh, in many ways, and many of them learn Arabic, and uh, they get along very well with the Arab populations. Again, this breaks down that myth mm-hmm. of the Arabs versus Crusaders thing. Uh, they get along very well with the with the uh, Arabs, with the Muslims. And uh, probably the one thing that there's some animosity over is, is uh, Christian women. And that's because Christian women were known to walk around without wearing veils. And, uh, and not only that, but Christian women typically spoke to men uh, who are not their husbands. Mm-hmm. And they just considered that to be women's lib. You know, 11th century women's lib was still too much for the uh, <laughs> Muslim world. There was um, some more... Uh, animosity uh, that takes place, as I say, but um, you know when you think about this this battle that takes place in Durazzo, you know remember it was only in ten ninety five that Alexius had sent a letter begging for help, mm-hmm. and now in eleven o eight so what are we, we're looking at here thirteen years mm-hmm. thirteen years later, Alexius is using his army to defeat a Christian army that's invaded his country mm-hmm. there's you know there's a shift a considerable shift that's taken place in that relatively period a short period of time and Alexius finds himself dealing with um all the players in the area he'll make uh, alliances with one Christian prince, but not with another. Mm-hmm. He'll make alliances with a sultan, 
as, uh, against other Christian princes. So the whole dynamic of what started out with the First Crusade is very, very different by the time it comes to an end. And on all of this, everything on all of this is based on um, based on uh, the the survival is is based on constant supplies via Italian city states. Um, that that's just going to become part and parcel of of uh, the reality of of this uh, this first crusade. Um, there are a couple, I just kind of to sum up, there, there are some other military campaigns, some more extensions, but ultimately what happens is that when you get into that next generation, there is going to be a, um, a Muslim um, general who is going to rise up and is going to, um, is going to challenge this situation, this temporary situation of, of of Christian hegemony in in the Middle East, his name is uh, he's an Emir, so he's a Turkish uh, military commander, and his name is Ahmed Al Din Zinji, and um, Zinji is going to attack the city of Edessa in 1144. So this is 45 years after Jerusalem has fallen. So this is that next generation. Okay. He attacks Edessa even as the Count of, of Edessa, his name was uh, Jocelyn II, had taken his entire army out to do campaigning someplace else. And so Edessa falls very easy uh, on Christmas Eve of uh, 1044. Zinji then separates out the residents, and all of the Muslim residents and all of the Syrian Christian residents he allows to go back into the city. All of the Latin Christian residents he slaughtered. Two years later, Zinji himself is assassinated uh, by a Muslim. But this fall of Edessa, now one of the four uh, major kingdoms. cities, uh -huh. kingdoms of, of, uh, of the Latin kingdoms, that fall then causes a shockwave all throughout Christian Europe. All of Christian Europe had been rooting for these crusaders. Everyone was pleased with the developments that had taken place. Everyone thought that it was going to be permanent. And now within less than 45 years, one of those cities has been destroyed and the Christian residents, the European uh, descended Christian residents, are all slaughtered. And now people begin talking about the possibility of a second crusade. So that's what we'll take up next time around is the crusades that follow after uh, this first crusade. All right. Wow. Thank you, Father. Okay. So we close with a prayer. Okay. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was, so was in the, the beginning, beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world, world without, without end. Amen. Amen. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Okay. We hope you enjoyed the program, and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.